I uh, it it means I'm going to to be able to see kids and families at a much earlier stage and make a much greater impact in their lives with the treatments that we have and the ones that that are being developed instead of saying yet again to another family this is the best that we can do at this stage of the disease Um, or there's nothing that we can do it's too late i don't I don't like saying that kind of stuff, but that's that's the brutal reality of treating many of these conditions uh, that we don't have anything. Newborn screening research is the way to fix that. I, I don't want to tell you how many days I say, if only we had newborn screening for this, things would be better. Today on the Newborn Screening Spotlight, we welcome a national leader in newborn screening research and clinical care. Dr. William Wilcott. Dr. Wilcott is the medical director of the Emory Lysosono Storage Disease Center and Genetic Clinical Trial Center in Georgia. He was a medical graduate of the UCLA School of Medicine and completed his residency in pediatric at UCLA and a genetic fellowship in the UCLA Intercampus Medical Genetic Training Program. As a clinician, Dr. Wilcott also leads clinical trials to discover new treatment for both metabolic and skeletal diseases. Amazingly, he has published more than 140 peer-reviewed articles and serves as a member of the Georgia Newborn Screening Advisory Committee. Dr. Wilcott and his team at Emory have conducted groundbreaking efforts and screened over 1 million newborns to help to increase the numbers of conditions that are included in the newborn screening in the United States. Join us as we hear from a leader in newborn screening research, Dr. Wilcott, and listen as he shares what newborn screening research means to him. Hello, this is the Newborn Screening Spotlight. This podcast is about the advancement of rare disease research told by health professionals, researchers, parents, and advocates. This podcast is for you to learn how newborn screening research saves the lives of babies every day through the discovery of new technology and treatment. You will hear stories from experts who treat babies, the families who care for them, and the researchers who make it all happen. We are your co-hosts. I am Dr. Ki Chan. And I'm Dr. Amy Brower. We're from the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network, also known as the MDSTRN. Our work is supported by one of the institutes at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, called the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, also known as NICHD. Dr. Chan and I are from the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics, also known as ACMG, and ACMG leads the MBSTRN. Screening babies saves lives every day, and research advances newborn screening by developing new technologies to screen, diagnose, and treat. MBSTRN helps accelerate research by creating tools, resources, and expertise for researchers, doctors, families, patients, and advocates. To learn how you can help advance newborn screening research, advocate for rare disease screening and treatment, and learn about important discovery, become a member of the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network by visiting our website at www.mbstrn.org. Hello, Dr. Wilcock. 
Thank you so much for joining us today for our podcast interview. We're so delighted to have you here. And our audience, our listeners on our podcast are very interested in learning more about your story. You are a pediatrician with a specialty in genetics, and you have led many research projects. Your research has focused on the clinical description and the molecular pathogenesis of conditions that are a part of or candidates for newborn screening. How did you get involved with newborn screening research? Uh, back when I was in California, uh, they took on the uh, one of the early days of the tandem mass spectrometry screening for disorders with uh, of amino acids and uh, ones you could pick up with acyl carnitines. And we did that uh, study throughout the state as George Cunningham was running that that study. And it, uh, it, it taught me a lot about the problems that were involved um, with that system. We had a uh, basically an opt out for parents. They had to decide whether they wanted to do it or not. They didn't go through an informed consent procedure, um, but they got a little information sheet and oh, not even half the hospitals in the state participated. So it, it was vastly disparate between rural California and uh, urban California uh, as to whether they participated or not. So, you know, they got as good a data as they could get with that mechanism. But I'd say the informed consent issue has continued to, to follow us through, um, through all the years. So that particular project taught me a lot. And, and then we did some, you know, analyses of, of different conditions as they, as they came out. I was part of the, uh, the state uh, newborn screening advisory board, like everybody that was running a metabolic center. So that was in, in the early days of starting off in, in faculty position. And then um, didn't do too much until I moved to Georgia and, uh, and started getting involved in it again and fell into it more or less by accident. But Dr. Wilcott, you're also currently the medical director of the Emory Liposomal Storage Disease Center and the Genetic Clinical Trial Center. You are the lead researcher, also called the principal investigator, known as PI, for the NICHD-funded pilot studies for several conditions. This effort that you and your team at Emory Lee in Georgia makes up one of the three states that conduct pilots. Can you tell us the goal of this NICHD program and explain to our audience where it fits as conditions move from candidates to nationwide screening? You know, I'm part of a, a, a team between uh, Emory uh, University Human Genetics Department and um, the Georgia Department of Public Health, where the screening laboratory is. And we've had a very a good relationship uh, over the years. And when uh, I was approached about screening for uh, Pompeii and mucopolysaccharidosis type 1, uh, it was because another state that had been planning to apply for this um, system through the NICHD had backed out, so they needed another state to be able to do it. And at, at that point, uh, you know, those things were very close to being uh, put on the recommended uniform screening panel. They didn't have a real statewide pilot, but they had some, some information on it. And 
uh, due to some difficulties with uh, informed consent and law changes and waiting for the Office of Human Research Protections to, to make some rulings, we, we're essentially on hold to be able to do any screening until those things were added to the recommended screening, pro, uh, screening program. So at that point, we were doing an implementation uh, project where we're seeing, you know, does this technology that we're going to use work? What are the problems that you're going to find in a, in a southern state like ours um, with a high African-American population? And, um, and, and how well does it work uh, with uh, a state that has both uh, an urban and a, and a very rural population? So um, we uh, took on those as, as projects to, uh, to find out, and we learned a lot of things through doing that. And then we have uh, since done projects that that uh, aren't uh, on the RUSP yet that were are being proposed, and some of them got on the RUSP during the actually the pilots while we were doing them. But I think the information that we gathered from these pilots have been very informative for other states that want to take it on. And uh, it takes time to get the, the the information to publication, but we presented it well ahead of time at meetings so that uh, other newborn screening programs can um, determine the way that they might want to run things when they do it themselves. So I think that, that it's evolved depending on what was capable from more of a implementation on a statewide basis uh, and the problems that you might run into to sort those out in, in real time, which you can't do if you just legislate it. Uh, it's very hard because you just don't have the resources. With the with the NICHD program, you know we're heavily involved in in tweaking things along the way to try and get it to to work as well as possible and have uh, you know the least false positives and not miss any babies either. And um, to something now where where we actually can look at. Uh, disorders that aren't on a RUSP and inform the committees that, that, that considers this as, as to what whether this is worth uh, adding or not and, and inform other states whether it's worth doing. Uh, so that's, I think the purpose is to move uh, candidate conditions, get them the information on a statewide pilot, and then move that into uh, uh, nationwide screening once that condition is added to the RUSP. And, and conversely, if you find out it's not a great thing to do, which we've, we've done with, um, I think, with proximal urea cycle disorders, um, we've done our best with, with the NeoBase 2 kit that we, we use for screening, uh, the, the false positive rate is, is unacceptably high. And, and, and no matter what we tried, we couldn't get it to, to get any better. So I think no one should take that one on. Um, so this this is good. I think the whole program could use some improvement, and we could talk about that later. Um, Dr. Wilcox, as a clinician, you care for not only newborns and children, but their families also. What role have families and advocates played in newborn screening research and in pilots? I mean, a, a lot of the time, the the families uh, learn about this when their when their child is turns up positive, we always put out notification to the pediatricians in the state that this is coming um, and that we're doing a, a screening study for a, a new disorder. 
Um, so they have some awareness of it, but they seldom remember before, before they get a positive. Um, and then we're involved in educating the, the uh, families uh, if, if the um, confirmatory screening particularly comes back positive and then bringing them in the clinic and, and educating them like we would any, um, any clinic patient. Um, and the, the state um, has been very supportive of, of these pilot studies. Uh, the, uh, the families and, and um, have been very supportive of us finding um, ways to diagnose things early and, and treat them. And um, it's always a, a challenge when you're going to find false positives. There's, there's just no way around that. Um, and you, we try to minimize uh, that as much as possible and uh, are increasingly making, making use of second-tier testing to try and uh, cut that false positive rate down further as long as there's you know, the time to do that and you don't, you don't have to do something quite urgently to, to save the child. Um, and that, that varies according to the state. So we've, we've got a very supportive population here. That's not the case everywhere. There's some some places with more concerns and, and laws in place that make it nearly impossible to do a statewide uh, pilot study, which is why there isn't a bigger pool of states that are doing these things. But I think overall it's been very positive. And, um, you know, uh, we've recently taken on a pilot study for Crab A that is funded by the state um, for three years. And that was because of the advocacy of a, a family who had a, a child with, um, with crab A that was picked up late. Um, he wasn't one of the infantile ones, but um, nevertheless could have benefited from earlier uh, transplantation. And so we're, we're trying to do this uh, with um, cyclosine as the second tier. And so far it's been working very well. We haven't had any, false positives and um, haven't had to do any recalls for families to, to work up kids that end up not having anything, uh, which has been the, been the plague of that uh, program in many other states. So I, I, um, that would only happen if we're doing it as we go along. We're keeping track of things and, and we, we have to make reports to the state committee on how things are going. Um, I think that's a, a positive way to do things, whether it's funded by the, the federal government or by state governments to do things as a pilot study. Through the years, parents and advocates, as, as you just have told us, have played in key roles in advancing newborn screening research and practice. From looking at your bio, you've been on many advisory committees, local, state, and national. Do you have any stories you'd like to share with our audience about your own advocacy and that of your parents and families? You know, I've had different roles in advocacy. I, I like to do things that make sense and, and don't do any harm. Families, you know, always want to push, well, families and patients always want to push for newborn screening for their own particular condition because they all know what they had to go through to get a diagnosis and Many of them know uh, that they or their child could have done better if they'd been detected earlier. So there's a, a lot of advocacy. There isn't always a, a test that we can do or a test that's practical. Um, 
uh, I think the, the way to, the best way that they do that is advocate for these pilot studies. And, and some of them do that. I think the, uh, the more dicey way to do things is to try to push it through legislatively before people really know what they're doing uh, and, and create a law. And then you've got to figure out what the heck you're doing on the back end uh, without the resources to really figure it out on the fly because it's not a pilot study. It's just, here you go, just do it. Uh, and that, that's been a nightmare for a number of things that have been added throughout the country. So I've, I've advocated uh, against uh, uh, creating it legislatively when it's not on the RUSP, um, unless it's going to be a pilot study. And, um, you know, it's been, I'd say I've been reasonably successful when I've done that. Uh, and now we've gotten uh, a pilot study funded in this state, which I think is, has been been great. The family really um, helped push that through the state legislature and get them to to uh, give the money to to do it properly. So I think that's a, a positive way. But I think the national system could use uh, more funding and and perhaps a slightly different system for how we do it. Dr. Volkart, thank you for sharing that story. Are you involved in training the next generation of pediatricians? And what do you tell them about newborn screening research? Um, I, I do train um, some of the pediatric residents. I'm, I'm much more involved in training our genetics residents. Uh, and you know, I talk to them about newborn screening and the, the, what we're doing. Um, and, and I give lectures to the uh, pediatricians through the AAP. Uh, uh, particularly when we're going to be bringing on uh, new conditions so that they, they know what they're going to be dealing with. Um, you know, there's, there's not a lot of exposure, unfortunately, uh, even at this time of pediatricians to genetic things. Um, so you, you do the best you can, but there's no real organized uh, way. And realistically, people should be learning more about genetics in medical school and throughout their training, and, and they're just not. You have been a member of the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network, MBSTRN, since the beginning of 2008 as a member of the steering committee. Can you describe your experience with MBSTRN over the past decade? So I, I went from being one of those people who was giving advice and working on these subcommittees and, and uh, trying to help the uh, NBSGRN build its infrastructure and organize itself. And, uh, you know, the mission was already fairly set, but to, to fill in the details um, and then, you know, rotated off committees and, uh, uh, now I'm using it because I'm involved with um, uh, actually doing the the research projects that are funded by the NIH that the NBSGRN helps uh, help support through their funding mechanism um, that that has the infrastructure that helps things and we enter uh, information into the um, the data repository for the uh, screening data. Uh, that was that was built up um, uh, with their help and uh, and and a lot of uh, effort from Mayo, and we've um, uh, entered data into their their patient registries with consent of the uh, of the families, uh, 
I mean, I, there's only so much funding for that. So there's, that's one of the things that's a bit of a problem long-term. So there's some, you know, restructuring, I think of the way the funding for this goes and, and MBS TRN can only do so much. They've also had uh, these monthly uh, conference calls, which I, I think are very helpful for getting all states together to talk to each other uh, and having um, their meetings uh, where people present their data and have some time to talk. And it's, and it's always uh, much better when there isn't a pandemic. In one of your previous response, Dr. Wilcall, you talked about statewide pilot studies. What are other supports and resources do you think could help facilitate the implementation of statewide pilot studies? Hey, right now, I think there's a, not a, an organized system whereby people are uh, looking at different conditions, figuring out the ones that we've got enough data to actually do a statewide study, figuring out which ones can be multiplexed together, uh, and uh, getting the uh, secretary's committee on board with getting data for those things that they think this is this is worthwhile, and then initiating those those pilot studies to fund them and to get the data on them that help uh, the secretary's committee make decisions about whether that should be included on the RUSP or not. So, so right now it's kind of a loose system between advocacy groups uh, proposing things, the NIH choosing which disorders they want to screen for, and uh, and then us us getting the orders to to do these things and um, and producing the data, but often the things already added to the rust by the time we get done. So um, I think there could be a more uh, organized system, and I know we could do multiplex these things more, so we get more bang for the same buck. Yeah, I, I think. Uh, it would be nice to get some information on what happens to the patients from newborn screening. We really don't have a lot of longitudinal data on many disorders. Um, and that's a, that's a pity, but that, that takes funding and uh, it's just not there. Um, and that's been a chronic problem throughout, throughout the history of newborn screening and, and uh, genetic disorders that, that I care for. I think there's also, you know, some some issues with laboratories, uh, newborn screening laboratories needing funding to uh, upgrade their facilities. Um, we're limited in how much space we've got in Georgia. We need a, a new piece of equipment. Where are we going to put it? Um, what's the power supply going to be like? Um, and, and during COVID, it's been a nightmare, of course, because that takes up so much of the state lab. Um, but there's really no system to help states upgrade things and no system to um, institute more molecular expertise within the laboratories. So there's, there's only one lab I know of that has a molecular component uh, beyond just uh, qPCRs or something like that in, in the state lab itself. So otherwise, we have to farm out things to um, 
to other laboratories to do any molecular tests if we're going to do that. So I think that's in in the not too distant future, that's going to be a problem where the state labs don't have the expertise. They don't have the equipment um, to do molecular tests. If, if we move to those things as sequencing gets cheaper and cheaper, we've just got no, no way to do that. Um, so I think that's going to limit not only what the you know, pilot programs can, can study, but uh, implementation across the 50 states is, you know, that could take 10 to 20 years if, if we don't, uh, if there isn't a system to increase funding the states to upgrade their systems in space. Um, so I, I think there's a lot more resources that could be put into this. Um, you know, I also th- think there should be a lot more discussion nationally about, um, uh, pilot studies and, um, and consent and what's needed doing informed consent family by family uh, well, there are a few projects that do that in a very limited way. That's not practical on a statewide basis. Um, so some states have laws in place that make it virtually impossible to do any newborn screening research, whether, whether as other states are, are um, easier to do these things in. And I think that's, that's a problem. I'm not sure there's anything that can be done about it other than education uh, to states to try and create some uh, more uh, hospitable environment for doing newborn screening studies so that we can advance things and we aren't you know stuck in place because there's too hard to do to do pilot studies there and there's some things that we're just not going to be able to do uh, because of space or resources in in our state or in any of the the pilot uh, program, since there's only three of us, it's not a lot. And it's all on the East coast. It's none of it any in the West or in the middle section of the country at all. Well, Dr. Wilcott, thank you for sharing those challenges. And I do hope that collectively as a newborn screening community, which makes up of researchers, clinicians, advocates, and also maybe federal and state agencies to consider how to think together to provide those resources for states to, uh, to do their good work and also to consider the impact of expanding the panel of disorders and conditions to be screened. So we're hoping that there are one of our listeners out there listening to this podcast. So at the end of our podcast, we like to ask our guests our signature question, and that is, what does newborn screening research mean to you? It means I've going to to be able to see kids and families at a much earlier stage and make a much greater impact in their lives with the treatments that we have and the ones that that are being developed instead of saying yet again to another family this is the best that we can do at this stage of the disease Um, or there's nothing that we can do it's too late. I don't, I don't like saying that kind of stuff, but that's that's the brutal reality of treating many of these conditions. Uh, that we don't have anything. Newborn screening research 
is the way to fix that. I, I don't want to tell you how many days I say, if only we had newborn screening for this, things would be better. But, you know, at the rate we're going, uh, it's, it'll be about 40 years after I retire before those things will be included on state programs. So, so things need to evolve. And um, I know that, um, that you all and, and other people are heavily involved in, in trying to come up with uh, ways to, to do this better. And, uh, and we need it. Well, Dr. Wilcott, thank you for all the great work you're doing and being a part of this community. And like you said, that you know we need to work together to think about how to to facilitate this process so that we don't need to wait like 40 years plus um, in order to catch those conditions earlier. So thank you so very much, Dr. Wilcott, for joining us today. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Newborn Screening Spotlight. If you like our podcast, please subscribe and share an episode with your colleagues, friends, and family. Get involved. Stay informed. Help us advance discoveries. Together, Together let's, let's increase, increase the, the impact, impact of newborn screening research by listening to your stories. stories.